BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Today's episode of The James Altucher Show is being brought to you by the Stansbury Conference Series. If you'd like to meet Penn Gillette in person, we've made it easy. Just go to stansburyconference.com slash altucher. And when you sign up, you'll also get to meet James. We're hosting this three-day event at the Five Star Aria Hotel in Las Vegas next month. So if you need an excuse to come to Vegas, well, here it is. For more information about this event, just go to stansburyconference.com slash altucher. Thanks. And now here's James' interview with Penn Gillette. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. So we've got 20 minutes, and normally that's a little shorter than my usual format. So I've got an idea for you. We're going to do 20 questions in 20 minutes with Penn Gillette. Okay. Okay. You like that idea? Sure. All right. I give a long answer, so it won't actually work. It's a good idea. I'm going to interrupt you. Is that okay? Okay. All right. You've been like a skeptic since you were a kid. You were, you're known to be, have been inspired by the amazing Randy, who I've actually seen him perform. He's, he kind of uncovers scams or tricks in the magic industry. Do you have any advice for others on how they can find what their calling is? Like you saw the amazing Randy and you said, bam, that's what I've got to do. What do you recommend to others uh, who want a similar kind of inspiration? Well, there's an expression that I first heard from Kinky Friedman, the Texas Jew boy, who once said, he was quoting someone else, but I can't find who, find what you love and let it kill you. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, Has magic killed you? No, but it will. Although my passion was never magic, you know. Uh, magic was something I got into because of talent. Uh, magic was not, you know, I was a juggler and a writer and cared a little bit about comedy. But I never cared much about uh, magic. I think it's important. I think it's really important. Uh, the Ross Talk Manifesto, a thing written by Gary Panter for the avant-garde group The Residents, said, if you don't like supermarket music, for Christ's sake, start making supermarket music. What it means is, if you don't, don't go into a form that you love. Don't be Guns N' Roses. Guns N' Roses loved the Rolling Stones. We already had the Rolling Stones. Let the Rolling Stones do it. I would much rather see someone get into hard rock who hated hard rock. But, but let, let me ask you a question on that, and I'm sorry to interrupt. It seems like in your act, you and Teller always take it to what's called the adjacent possible. So like when you appeared in your act, you were the first magic act to do full frontal nudity. It seems like you're always taking an, your act 
and asking each other, what can we do now that's never been done? So you actually, you're not the Rolling Stones. You're the Rolling Stones plus full frontal nudity. Well, yes. My whole point is you want to get into a form that you don't think there's anyone in doing stuff you love. If you love the Rolling Stones, you shouldn't be in a rock and roll band because the Rolling Stones got you covered. Unless you, you do a band where you take it one step further, that, like that Rolling Stones. Stones com, the Rolling Stones aren't doing it, are they? Right. That's my point. I loved the Velvet Underground. I loved Frank Zappa. I loved Bob Dylan. I knew I couldn't do better than them, so I didn't get into music. I'm a strong believer that the average 18-year-old kid shouldn't be sentenced to four years of solitary confinement in college. You sort of agreed. You went to clown college. Like, how did you... That's, that's two months. The word college is just a joke. Right, right, exactly. So so how did you decide to, to go that direction? And what did your parents think? Like, what was happening in your life when you were 18? My parents, it was a big deal because my, uh, my, my, my mom finished high school. My dad did not. And they believed that uh, their lives would have been better and easier had they had a chance to go to college. So I was the first person in my family was going to go to college and I've always tested very well. So I was going to be able to get into college and indeed did have pretty much full scholarships to whatever college I wanted to go to. I went because of SAT scores and so on. I went to uh, visit those colleges and those colleges had people doing drugs and listening to bad music. And what I hated about high school was drugs and bad music. But I, you know, I, it seems like being 18 and having that kind of uh, I hate to use the word, but authenticity with yourself. Like most people are trying to fit in, but you know enough about yourself to say, okay, I'm not going to fit in with that music. I'm going to do my own thing. I had the longest hair in my school. I had eye makeup. I hated drugs. I hated the Grateful Dead. And you were a six foot five. Seven, but yes. Uh, but I, so I went to uh, visit these college campuses and they were more of the same assholes smoking the same dope listen to the same shitty music. And I said to my guidance counselor, if you can find me a school where you can guarantee me there'll be no God and no drugs, I'm there. And, and he found you a clown college? Did he do that as a joke? Uh, he didn't find me clown college. I found it on my own. And the guidance counselor just said, no, no, well, you can be like you were here. You can kind of keep to yourself. And I kind of said, no, I can be like I'm going to be in the world. And that is kind of keep to myself. So I created a world that has no drugs and no God. That's great having that insight at 18. Like, I don't think I developed that insight until I was age 40 that I could create my world. Yeah. And so I've been catching up. But even Christopher Hitchens, when yeah. he came to my house, left the alcohol at the door. Really? Wow. Yeah. So, okay, so what did you learn in clown college? What was the biggest thing you've learned in clown college? The biggest thing I learned is the first person I ever met in show business was me. I'm from a small, dead factory town in Western Massachusetts. Uh, show business was not an option. When I went to clown college, I met other people who actually thought seriously about the idea of comedy. I never even knew that existed except for writers. The idea of being able to sit on a beach in Florida and say, why is Buster Keaton funny? Why are the Marx Brothers funny? Why are the Stooges funny? Why is Lenny Bruce funny? was really, really important to me because I wanted two things. I mean, I wanted more than anything to be pretentious. I love being pretentious. Why did, why did love, you love that? 
And I I'm, love I, being highfalutin. I, I've heard you quote about that as a that's almost a leveling factor. Like if you have as strong opinions as possible, but are honest about it and authentic about it, you'll actually get along better with people of the opposite opinion. Even of course, that's the respectful thing. But I've always liked highfalutin stuff. I've always liked um, serious literature. The problem is that whenever I would talk about anything, people laughed at me. So I was forced into comedy. What I really want to be is a brooding French poet working in Paris. You think that will be your next step? Your next I don't think I'll ever get there. That's what I actually wanted. It's funny how everybody, no matter who I talk to, does have something that's secretly on the other side of the fence they want to do. It's not really very secretly. It's just I've, I've always, you know, my, my sister used to say, you know, that when people asked her what I did, she always answered writer. Uh, writer is, I'm afraid, what I see myself as. The fact that I write for uh, me. <laughs> and you've also written like six books or yeah. however many. But what I, oh, what I do when there's nothing else to do is I write. So, you know? so it's interesting. I asked you, what did you learn the most in clown college? You didn't give a skill, but you gave a whole kind of philosophical theory of getting into, you know, doing what you love. But what is a skill you learned in clown college that you I learned, used to I learned, uh, I, I learned wire walking. I learned uh, tumbling. I learned uh, all, you know, I was a very, very good juggler when I went to clown college. Matter of fact, that's how I got in. I was the youngest person in and I was the last person accepted. I was their very final choice. I only got in because someone else dropped out. Was juggling then, uh, good for uh, kind of the hand skills needed for a lot of your magic tricks? I suppose, although uh, magic is much less skill-oriented than juggling. And I even use some odd definitions. You know, there's this thing called cardistry, which is manipulation with cards that is very, very popular now, that gets shuttled in with magic, whereas actually it's completely juggling. It's just juggling with cards. And a lot of your sleight of hand stuff comes into the category of juggling. And although I didn't like intellectually, I didn't like magic, uh, I loved uh, I loved learning card slides. What, so why did you intellectually like magic? Is it the word magic itself? No, it's just, I didn't like the idea of an art form that celebrated lying to people. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to get to that. In your early days, you've talked about living out of your car, touring nonstop, working super hard. What's the biggest thing you learned during that time on kind of the rise up? Well, that was all – I spent all that time to tell. So the, everything I learned during that time was from Teller. And Teller was really interested in dramatic structure. Teller was really interested in all sorts of, um, of uh, ideas about theater and all sorts of ideas of performance. What I learned during that time, all that time running around doing shows, was what Teller and I did not want to see in a show. We learned very clearly what we didn't want to see. Alfred Hitchcock said, if you want to do great movies, don't see great movies and say, I'm going to do that. See bad movies and say, I'm not going to do that. That is such great advice. So what did you, what did you guys decide you did not want to do in a show? We did not want to see a greasy guy in a tux with a lot of birds torturing women in front of Mylar and a bad, small, dick, white boy rip-off Motown music. That's what we did not want to see. So is that like David Copperfield? Well, there's a lot of people in that. I mean, David Copperfield is the best of those, and he has grown out of that. But we did not want to see that kind of... See, here's the thing that's so fascinating about magic. Magic is a playful study of epistemology. It's a study of how we ascertain truth. 
But magicians piss that away. They piss that away by saying, oh, come with me on a magic journey. This is a dream I had last night. They try to turn magic into special effects. And magic, as Teller has said so succinctly, is the unwilling suspension of disbelief. It's not the willing suspension of disbelief. If Shakespeare writes, we're in a storm on an island, you just go, okay, we're in a storm on an island. If he writes, this guy is king of Denmark, you go, okay, he's king of Denmark, even though I saw him in a shampoo commercial last week. But magicians, if they say, this hand is empty, you expect them to prove it. And that is the unwilling suspension of disbelief. You're not supposed to play along with a magician. And yet magicians working at that time had all this sense of, come on, play along with me. Just have fun with me. Just come on and watch this. So they were doing illusions and not tricks. And we wanted to do tricks and not illusions. I see. So they were doing a lot of the kind of smoke and the tricks would happen under the smoke. And we were supposed to suspend disbelief while that happened. You were supposed to play along with them. You were supposed to say, Oh, this is a dream you had about painting a woman last night and then she came to life. That's not a dream you had, you lying sack of shit. This is just a prop you found that you painted this way and now this is the way you've staged it. I'm going to guess since their audience at that time, like let's say the early 80s, let's 70s, were kids like me, that kids did have the suspension of disbelief. We didn't know. We didn't know to look. Oh, no, you're absolutely wrong. Children more than anyone are aware of tricks. They're very, very aware of tricks. When my, when my son and daughter were five years old, they cared very much about trickery. As a matter of fact, no one is more obsessed with tricks and lying than children in their preteens. I mean, really. So when you were watching magic specials, you didn't say, I'm watching this like Star Wars. You said, I'm watching this like someone is doing tricks for me. And yet the magician was pretending that wasn't the case. I guess there was some aspect of trying to solve the puzzle. Sure, of course, of course. You have to go beyond. It should not be special effects, and it should not be solving the puzzle. It should be an intellectual uh, study with comedy, moving fast, of how you ascertain what's true. That's what magic is always dealing with. Even the worst magic done really, really badly is still dealing with how do we ascertain truth. So I want to understand that a little more. So when you do just the cups trick, which people could Google, you and Teller doing the cups trick, what truth are you ascertaining there? I mean, there's a very simple base level of that, which is if this kind of thing can be done at, uh, at this base level, this silly a trick that's been around for thousands of years. If that can be done and really give the impression of something that I know to begin with is impossible, then these are the things I have to look for in life to help me ascertain truth. I mean, very simply, it tells you seeing is not believing, and very simply, it tells you people lie. Now, when you lay that out, it's showing you that there are machinations below the surface that you may not be privy to. And just that emotional idea is important. It's like you're using magic as a pathway to explain skepticism in some sense. Well, yes, well, they are the same to me. There's, there's, there's two forks of magic that are very clearly represented throughout history. There's the fork of magic that is priests and holy people and witch doctors that try to claim that their tricks are real. Then there is the fork of magic that starts with a book called The Discovery of Witchcraft in the 16th century, uh, which is the first book to ever 
deal with magic is thought were tricks. And that continues famously to Houdini, who um, was very much, this is all tricks, and then continues today with Amazing Randy. Now the other branch continues with um, David Blaine, who, uh, who you know, is a friend of mine. We've talked about this and argued about this completely for hours about the subject. He believes that the magician's job to confuse the reality of the world. He is proud about giving facts that are not true that people believe. So, so for instance, if he's like hanging a hundred feet in the air with no food, he he might claim that's real and not that it's a trick. That uh, you know the way you you always are upfront. This is a trick. He's saying I've trained for a hundred years and now I'm doing this and it's not a trick. Yeah, and which is very strange because a guy who is doing card tricks the week before the next week says, oh, and by the way, I also have these secret powers. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I've met Yuri Geller, you know the quasi the pseudo psychic. And he's actually done these tricks for me that were so obviously tricks that it was ridiculous. But he wanted to create a website where you hit a button and you get psychic powers by hitting that button. And that was how he was going to make money during the Internet boom. But that's another story. So yeah. was there ever that's a not surprising story? He's got kind of cat. <laughs> was there ever a low point in your career where you thought, damn, maybe I'm going to have to get a real job? Uh, well, you know, that option. You know, there's that door was closed to me because I can't do anything. My other option is to go to jail. You know, Teller, um, Teller had a lot of options. Teller was a high school classics teacher. He's a Latin and Greek scholar. Uh, he actually gave up something to go into magic. I was homeless living on the streets, so I didn't give up a lot to do this. Why did he take a chance on you and vice versa? Uh, I, I think we thought very early on Although we did not like each other, we thought very early on we could do better stuff together than we could separately. Was there ever a point where you thought, okay, man, I'm so happy, I finally made it. I can keep doing this forever. Well, yes, very, very early on. I mean, I would say within three months. I was making, you know, my dad was a jail guard. Tell his dad was a commercial artist. We began to make as much money as our dad's doing what we loved instead of what we hated, which was something, you know, my dad never talked about being a jail guard. I mean, that's one of the worst jobs you can have. He never spoke about it. He was wonderful to his family. He was loving, he was caring, he was the perfect dad and never talked about that. But as I got older, I realized, you know, he didn't like that job. I now have all that love that I have for my family, but I also have a job that I look forward to doing. I even look forward to talking to you. Oh, I look forward to it, too. Um, after after three months, though, do you think you were able to uh, obtain that much success because you had that extra uh, difference in your act? You know, you had almost like this theater influence plus this skepticism influence. It was it was a couple things. It was one that uh, uh, my needs were very low. I was, a, you know, I was 19 years old. I was single. Uh, I didn't care where I slept or what I ate. The amount of money you need to make to be successful at that level is pretty low. Second of all, I was a um, really good street performer. I could always make a shit ton of money just walking out on the street and opening a suitcase and juggling. Okay, so juggling, but how did you learn the skills to do, let's say, the magic tricks? We just worked them out. You know, Teller read 
a lot that we studied and learned and figured it out. But there's some skills like palming the coins and, and cards and things like that. How many hours, years, months do you that's think you the play? Whole, that's the whole thing about magic. There's only one trick we do. And that trick is we're willing to work harder than you think we would work. So we just put in a, a trick in the show that runs three minutes that Teller and I worked on six years solid. You would not work six years to do three minutes. We would. So, okay, let me, on a slightly different topic, you recently lost 105 pounds. Congratulations. Did you have to redesign any of your tricks because your body was different? Some of the, uh, some of the suits, uh, most of the suits are rigged. They're gimmicked. The tricks are built into the pockets, handling and stuff. And all the suits had to be retailered dramatically. And that was a huge pain in the ass and tremendously expensive. Uh, I had to change the way I talked because the way people look at you on stage changes with the difference of 100 pounds. When I would do monologues before, there was a kind of a power in standing there like a monolith, just in being, uh, I mean, it's very funny, but the, the gravity of what you're saying is also affected by the actual gravity, the pull of gravity on you. When I got lighter and smaller, I had to move more. I uh, changed the way I spoke, changed the way I... Uh, did, you, did you talk uh, deeper? I'm talking, about, I'm talking about, no, no, I'm not even talking about timbre, although that changed too. I'm just talking about the way uh, words feel, the way timing feels is different with a different body. When you, you can be uh, a little, you can be a little more aggressive when you're, when you're fatter, and when you're thinner, you have to be a little more smiling. Uh, I get friendlier when I was thinner. Uh, all of this stuff, all of this stuff is very, very important, but very, very hard to, to actually quantify. So it seems like what you're talking about, it sounds, it, what it makes me feel is that there's kind of the, the basic tricks, people know, whatever, but then the real art is the rhythm and performative aspects of what you're doing. Well, you know, as with any field, it's always everything. You know, uh, it's always everything. And um, the tricks have to be perfect. You know, one of the things that, uh, one of the big mistakes young magicians make is uh, they get really excited about an idea, a concept for a trick that really may be absolutely brilliant and they may absolutely love it. But then they think that the idea is so good they don't have to do it perfectly. Once you get the brilliant idea, then you've got to do all the stupid shit, all the really stupid shit. So we've got an idea that's from our hearts, never been done before, is brilliant. Then we have to have someone sitting way over stage left, way over stage right, end up in the balcony and going, no, I can see your left hand. Nope, nope, nope. And it's really frustrating because you think you've got this great idea and then uh, you have to then do this dirt dumb stuff to, um, to present it. The only useful thing I learned in high school, one thing, I went to a really shitty high school, terrible, one useful thing I learned, and that was one substitute teacher one day said in front of a creative writing class, no one wants to read what you write. No one does. So make it as easy for them as you can. 
because the first thing they bump into that gives them an excuse not to read, they will stop. The first word that's misspelled, the first thing's a little hard to read, people move right on. So you've got a brilliant, you know, uh, a brilliant idea, like uh, my friend Christian Bach, who wrote a book called uh, Unoya, okay, which uh, I thought I had right there, I don't. A book called Unoya, which a chapter is written with just one vowel. So there's a chapter that has no vowel in it but A, and he writes the whole book on that. That's a really, really nice idea. And you could get a nice representation of that in about six months. He worked 10 years. He worked 10 years on that because every word is perfect and perfectly chosen. If you're doing comedy and you have a really nice, rich, comedic idea and you want to lay it out, it'll, it'll do okay. But if you really want people to listen, make sure every word is pronounced properly. Make sure that every word is chosen properly. Make sure all your timing is perfect. And when you do something really, really heavy, all the stuff you don't respect. Okay, so you're going to do this really intellectual magic trick. And you've got it all laid out. You want to do it as smart as Bob Dylan. And you're all set to go and all set to do that. Then you've got to remember that you've got to be just as dirt dumb as everybody on AM radio. You know, you've got to play it. You've got to, so when you've got an idea for a song, I mean, Bob Dylan's a great example. You've got an idea for Blonde on Blonde. You know, the most brilliant pop record ever done. Okay? He's got ideas for songs that are absolutely brilliant. Songs that are so good that if you just pulled out a guitar, recited the lyrics, and played the chords, I'd be pretty impressed. But then Bob goes to Nashville and gets the best sessions cats possible and the best producers and gets those things played absolutely beautifully. Because there are some people that the snare drum is not well recorded are going to go, the brilliant idea won't carry you through. So uh, the most important thing is everything. So I read recently the average child laughs 300 times a day on average. The average adult laughs just five times a day on average. You seem to have reversed that uh, pattern somehow. So how do you find kind of what makes you different? Like how, how do you find the things to laugh at that you laugh at? I don't know. I just don't know. Uh, one of the things may be, uh, you know, that I had, uh, you know, I had, I'm the one guy who had the leave it to beaver upbringing. You know, my parents were perfect. They treated me wonderfully. Um, I've always been treated well. And um, I don't know. Maybe that's, you know, you're, you're getting into the nature nurture debate. I don't really, I don't really know the answer, but you know, I, uh, I sure do. Uh, I sure do like being alive. And I think a big part of that is atheism. I don't think you can be as happy as a, uh, as a, as a, as a, as a, someone who's religious, someone who's religious is by definition, not as happy as someone who's living life here and now. Just because they're, they're pinning their hopes on some future. Yeah. And automatically, I mean, the Bible, the Quran, and the Torah, I mean, I'm not counting all religions because I'm not counting any of the Eastern religions, but what, what is called jokingly the Mediterranean death cults, the Abrahamic religions, three, um, they are built on the idea that this world is miserable suffering. 
as a test for the next world. Well, think about it. What started off those religions was God telling the 96-year-old Abraham to cut off part of his dick so that he could have a kid. And from there, everything started. Everything goes to shit. Right. So so speaking of being a dad, though, what you've, you've done a lot of reality TV. And one of my favorites was the celebrity wife swap. And you're like a really good parent. And now I'm a parent of two kids. What advice would you give on parenting? Oh, Jiminy. Uh, certainly not qualified. Struggling, struggling through ad living, trying to save my ass every second. But it's, 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 it's very easy because you have built-in biological love. And everybody that's going to be a parent, I tell them, you know, my parents told me, you will never understand how much we love you until you have children. And I thought I could not love my parents more. Well, you know, I love my parents more than anyone in the world until my children came along. And now I say to them, you can't understand this. And the wonderful thing about that is it's like sex. It's completely biological. You don't have control over how much you love your children. And that's wonderful. And that's what gets you through. I always believe in like having building up routines, having good habits, improving myself, let's say in small increments, 1% a day or however you count it. What would you think is a, a habit that has helped you kind of incrementally improve and, and you know, what routine or habit or anything you, you have to share that, that has helped you improve throughout the years? I, I write a journal every day, like a teenage girl. I start my day by writing a journal. And I find that with my kind of memory, I can't forget something until I write it down. Or once I write something down, I can let it go. I also read my journal every morning before I do anything else. I read 20 years ago, 10 years ago, and one year ago. And I know that if I have the exact same problem today that I had one of those times, something drastic has to change. Like what? Well, you know, if, if, I, if I have a person a year ago that I'm writing, this person's a pain in the ass. Uh, I don't know if they're worth having around me this much. And then a year later, I'm reading the same thing. Chances are I don't return that email. <laughs> so so you've obviously had a lot of inspirations, books, music, uh, different theater, whatever. What, 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 are, what are some of your biggest inspirations? Uh, Bob Dylan, uh, Herman Melville, uh, uh, Nicholson Baker, uh, Christian Bach, um, Frank Zappa, uh, Lou Reed, Miles Davis, uh, Mingus, uh, Picasso, Warhol, all of those people are in my mind all the time. Let me ask you, what, what is it about Picasso? It's Bob Dylan painting right behind me here. What is it? It's Bob Dylan. Oh, that's cool. So, so what, what's the, what did you learn from Picasso? I'm just curious because I'm fascinated by Picasso as well. What I learned is that in um, art, actually this is true for any one of those people you'd ask me, in art, you need both inspiration and skill. Uh, if you have one, you can go pretty far. We all know the crazy person who can't do anything. We'd love to watch what they do. We also know the skilled person that has all the chops, but there's no heart exploding. Picasso was as good a traditional artist as you could find. And then he was crazy enough to really create. Now, what I just said is true for Miles Davis, true for Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan's a fine guitar player. He could have played just folk music his whole life, but he had always this inspiration. So what I've always learned is you've got to do both. 
You've got to be brave enough to do shit that is absolutely bug nutty crazy. And then you've got to work hard enough to make that being done perfectly skillful. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add one little thing to it, which is I went to the opening of the Andy Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh like, like 23 years ago, perhaps, or 20 years ago. And I couldn't believe there was like nine stories filled with his work. And Picasso did 50,000 pieces of art in his life. So there's, a, there's, there's the kind of the skill, there's the inspiration, and then there's this, the sheer persistence and consistency to it. And what you described earlier is the work of it. Also true, also true with Bob Dylan, also true with Miles Davis. So, you know, I've, I, we've done 20 questions in 33 minutes. I'm really impressed. I really appreciate the time. I'm sorry I went over time a little bit for you, but uh, um, I'll, I'll be seeing you in person in a couple months and uh, I look forward to it. Thanks. I look forward to it too. Very nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you, Penn. Thanks. Bye. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.